Histories of Science in Africa, a podcast supported by the Center for Science and Society at Columbia University. Our guest today is Nancy Jacobs, an environmental historian who is a professor of history at Brown University. Her work has examined environmental factors in the underdevelopment of the subsistence economy in the Kuruman district and animal history. Her current book project we discussed today is titled The Global Gray Parrot. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi. How good to meet you. Good as well. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. So can you tell me a little bit about yourselves first? I mean, I only know what you've written. I to know more about who you are. I'm Jesse. I'm in my third year of the program at Columbia, and my work is on histories of family planning in Ghana from about mid-century onwards. Okay. So how are you doing that? I mean, historians always have to say, what are your sources? What, what are you right. looking at? So I've done a bit of archival work, and then I'm starting my research here in January, and I'll be doing oral history interviews with people that participated in family planning programs or remember them. I was in Ghana in 2019 and really loved it. Oh, really? It. Yeah. yeah. Oh, awesome. What part of Ghana were you in? Southern Ghana. The forest is where the parrots are. So we were traveling around with Nat Anerbaugh, an ornithologist. Yeah. The funny thing about my career is I keep moving counterclockwise through the continent. And I'm always moving further north and west. Before Ghana, I did research in Cameroon. So I'm heading toward Liberia, Sierra Leone, or Senegal before I retire. Yeah. (laughs) What do you do, Connor? I am a person who does historical linguistics and comparative ethnography. Also, with the deep time ecological factor brought in. My project is going to be a multi-species history in the western basin of Lake Victoria between basically between Lake Victoria and then the Great Lakes to the west. I think one of the things about it being such like a young and burgeoning field is questions of what exactly is the methodology and what constitutes because some of the stuff that I've been looking at, it seems more like multi-species is a sensibility as opposed to an explicit methodology that's being figured out. It certainly has things to say theoretically, and I think it can have things to say methodologically, but there's more to figure out in terms of how we can talk to one another across disciplines and triangulate things with one another. But I think the linguistics is a methodology, and that's what really escaped me that I wish that I had sure. had access to. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. To get things started off, will you tell us about your intellectual interests over time and how you've kind of come to examining the environment, birds and birding, and now gray parrots? When I went into my PhD program, I only knew that I wanted to study rural South Africa. And this was really in the late 80s. And the rural historiography of South Africa was all about the underdevelopment of the countryside. There were lots of structural Marxist analyses. And unlike a lot of the people at British universities who were writing those, I hadn't cut my teeth on Marxist analysis. And I really missed the narrative. A lot of it didn't make sense to me as history. And somehow I ran across American environmental history. And this just captivated me. I was always the kind of kid who loved natural history. I didn't have the talent to be a scientist, but I loved reading about nature. And this seemed a way to bring in clopedic knowledge, detailed knowledge about the natural world. The book that really inspired me was Roots of Dependency by Richard White. Richard White wrote a lot of things, but this was, I think, his second book. 
And it's a story of three Native American groups and how their relations with the colonial state and the market economy especially undermined their ecological relationship and their subsistence practices. So it put the environment, environmental practices and environmental knowledge in that story of economic underdevelopment. And for me, that's what was missing in, in narratives about the underdevelopment of the Southern African countryside. It almost seemed as if farmers had forgotten how to farm once capital penetrated and that confused me. So I wanted to write a more environmentally informed analysis of the underdevelopment of the countrysides. So that was my first book, came out in 2003, Environment, Power and Injustice. And by the time that book came out, the field had moved beyond those questions about underdevelopment. And I myself also wanted to get away from economistic analyses. So I took my cultural turn, my cultural turn. As everyone was doing in environmental history at that time, 20 years ago, environmental history was very much a history of science. You'll find a lot of environmental historians who are working in the history of knowledge. So my cultural turn, I didn't know quite what I'd do, but I was at Lake Baringo in Kenya. And there are what, 350 bird species there? Amazing. I'm just a bird tourist looking at the birds. And there was a guide there who knew all the birds. And this just fascinated me. And I always find myself when I go birding, being as interested in the people as I am in the birds. And I thought, how do you, all of these birds? Is this something you learned from your grandparents? Is this something you knew growing up? Or did you learn this from the job? Is it book knowledge that comes from ornithologists? And while I was wondering about that, I thought, how do any of us know anything about birds? And poof, suddenly my history of the knowledge of birds was born. So I did that. And when I did that, originally I thought I was going to write a history of people and birds in Africa. And it turned out that wasn't possible from the sources I had. So I wound up writing a history of the birders themselves rather than people and birds and, and about the politics of knowledge. It turned out to be very biographical. But what really connected different birders, the white ornithologists, the black hunters who worked for them, was that the birds were dead. The birds were always being killed. And I tried to take into account the characteristics of bird bodies and think about their, how their materiality mattered. But as animals, they were always dead by the time they got into my story. So I wrote this book about people and dead birds rather than people and birds. And I found that to be really frustrating because I'm an environmental historian and I'm supposed to be looking for, quote unquote, the agency of nature. And at some point, I wanted to do a history of an animal or a plant or something, some living non-human entity. And at some point I came on the gray parrot and the gray parrot is, is really a great subject because it comes from the forests of West and Central Africa. By 1500, it turns up in Europe. It's all over the world as a cage bird now. It's become a really important research subject in cognitive research. We know a lot about its intelligence through experimental research. It's been trafficked in the late 20th century, often illegally as one of the many resources that are taken from Africa. It's mass produced in South Africa, a country I know really well, and now it's endangered. So there's just so much about the gray parrot to put together in a global history. that It's a living bird with a particular character, but it's also very much about African environmental history and the connection of the African environment to the wider globe as a resource. So that's why I'm excited about the gray parrot book. And that's how I got there from being a kid who liked stories and natural history both and found my way to environmental history. Great, thanks. One of the things when you were just talking that I started thinking about was 
the different kinds of knowledge and the different people that have different kinds of knowledge. As it relates to birds, I lived in Tanzania for a year and I went on a few safaris in the Serengeti. And one of my good friends was very interested in the birds. And I also noticed that a lot of the tour guides did have knowledge of the different species and all the different birds that were there. So it did draw a parallel in my mind to museum assistants that you talk about in your Birders of Africa book in the ways that there's a production of different kinds of knowledge and of course vernacular knowledge and European ornithological knowledge we're engaging, but then also the ways that these different actors are drawing on these different kinds of knowledge in different ways. And people are benefiting in different ways from these different bodies of knowledge. So before we move to the gray parrot, I'm just wondering how the politics of knowledge production around birds, can you talk about that a little bit and how you kind of take into account the politics of birding, particularly in Southern Africa, when you're writing this history? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I only figured out later it was going to be a book about the politics of knowledge. So I had to do a lot of work in, in the history of science to figure that out. Part of my issue was that I didn't have access to the methodologies of history based on linguistics. And when you're no longer a doctoral student, you probably aren't going to have this long time for extended field work. So I was limited by my own skills and by my life circumstances to shorter trips to archives it became clear to me that my archives were going to be ornithological records. So as I was approaching ornithological records, I thought from my knowledge of colonial science that what I was going to find was erasure and expropriation. I was completely prepared to find that. And uh, colonialism is about erasure and expropriation. But in these particular archives, I found a lot about African assistants. I found in some cases, the ornithologists were celebrating their knowledge. They were also crediting them. And there was enough about them that I could actually look at them as biographical subjects. A lot of this book became biography. So I figured out I was writing about different actors and the knowledge they held. So after I figured that out, that it wasn't about people and birds more generally, I had to come up with a way to characterize the knowledge. And that was really hard because... I didn't want to reify and valorize the categories of science. I didn't want to put in the divide that had been dismantled between indigenous knowledge and science. I couldn't say that science was not tacit knowledge because a lot of it was. They were working with bird bodies. Every time I tried to figure out what was the difference between science and the knowledge that these African practitioners and experts had came up against a roadblock. I couldn't figure it out. So somehow I stumbled on Bruno Latour. And Latour describes, characterizes science as a system of circulation. It doesn't have to do the quality of knowledge. It's just about the circulation of knowledge. That science is a very peculiar thing. And what it does is it encases the history of the scientist within the fact itself. So citation is always essential and linked to the fact. He calls it a hardened fact that circulates through the system. It's a really expensive and labor-intensive way to produce knowledge, but they're formed together, the history of the fact and the fact itself, and circulates in this very controlled way. So This was a great way to provincialize science and to think about how peculiar science was. And also, Tour doesn't quite go into describing 
the, the other form of circulating knowledge was soft facts, but it seemed to me the best way to describe that was vernacular knowledge. So vernacular knowledge is everyday knowledge, the folk tales and urban legends and household hints. It's knowledge that circulates without anybody remembering who invented that bit of knowledge. And unlike the hardened facts of science, it can change, it's adaptable, it can change all the time. It's an essential way we know the world, but it's not science. So I became focused on the peculiarities of science and the differences from vernacular knowledge. And in doing that, I separated the question of what is European and what is African from the question of what is science and what is not, because much of European knowledge is vernacular knowledge. And science with this very particular system of circulation, when it's done in Africa, is African science. But in the colonial period, I was looking at the intersection between white Europeans who practiced ornithology and science and were invested in this peculiar system of circulation and African vernacular experts who were not invested in that peculiar system of circulation. There was great dependence of these white experts on the African experts because what they needed were dead bird bodies and the African experts were good at killing them. So with all of this dependence in a colonial situation, you're going to find some anxiety and you're going to find some questions about keeping boundaries state and keeping boundaries straight and not blurring the lines between the colonial and the native. And so the way I saw it, these white ornithologists were perfectly able to credit African experts as having expertise. They were okay about drawing on that expertise, but they drew the racial boundary around this circulation system of science. And the racial boundary was around who could be an author, who could be authors of facts. So there was plenty of room to acknowledge African expertise, but there was no room to have an African author a scientific text. So once I saw that, and, and thinking about just what a peculiar thing these scientific texts were, I started to think about the exclusion of African experts differently, because really, why would it be important to a hunter in Zambia to become the author of a scientific fact? It's such a strange thing. What would he get out of that? So I was able to, to think about the vernacular systems and how the vernacular bird experts benefited what they drew from, from this relationship with white scientists. And I found a lot of social capital, financial wealth, honor status. So I was able to imagine how these black experts were able to pursue the goals of being a vernacular birder, even while they were working for these white scientists. On the other hand, in South Africa, I found this, this museum assistant who was an urban person and was invested in the professional world of the museum, and he was living in apartheid in South Africa. And for him, there was no social capital from being a vernacular birder. He didn't have wealth. He didn't have the ability to challenge. He didn't have the ability to shoot meat. And so... I contrasted these two different African bird experts. One was the, the hunter who really was able to find a lot of freedom and satisfaction and, and benefit, and the museum preparator in South Africa who was really frustrated and excluded. So I was able to tell two different stories about the Black birders on the other side of this racial scientific line. Thank you. I really enjoyed the part of that book when you were really thinking about what different actors had motivations were and different things that they could gain outside of scientific ownership or some sort of scientific claim to a particular kind of knowledge. Yeah, well, it's, it's a matter of provincializing science. And I think that's easy to do with ornithology, 19th century and early 20th century ornithology, because it was all about taxonomy. 
And it was all of these arcane systems of describing the bodies of dead birds and coming up with the relationships between them. We all look at that today and say, wow, they invested a lot of energy into that peculiar pursuit. But because it was such a peculiar pursuit, it's really easy to imagine why the African birders were not invested in that. And we can look elsewhere for what their benefits were. So I think the discipline of ornithology at that time made it really easy to make this argument that there were other benefits accruing to the Black participants because they weren't coming from ornithology. Yeah. Great, thanks. Connor, did you have any follow-ups? Yeah, I'm fascinated by this discussion so far, and I feel like my mind is firing to different questions that I want to ask or things that I want to take up, but I was really struck by the way you've laid out sort of the making and remaking of vernacular knowledges over time. And despite the fact that you're not doing any of the deeper linguistic research, I'm seeing all kinds of overlaps with that sort of work in terms of the driving concerns for people that are doing historical linguistics are to look for concepts, ideas that people have retained over time, that they've innovated, that they've borrowed from other neighboring societies or groups that they perhaps have lost over time. So this idea that vernacular knowledge is something that is continually produced and reproduced across a time scale, both sort of at the very mundane everyday level, but then also intergenerationally. It really speaks to the, the things that fascinate me. And I'm just because you mentioned Zambia, it brings to mind another book that was published in this same agrarian series, which is Kate DeLuna's on cultivation and bushcraft. So the idea that there are ways of knowing and doing about hunting or fishing or herding or farming that are the site of all kinds of politics and multi-generational wrangling between humans and between the sort of sign where we're going, but between humans and non-humans and other than human beings. Can I say that you guys have this podcast on the history of science in Africa, and you have to deal with what is science, right? How do we define it? And, And I've said that I don't have a category of African science, African in any kind of essential way. I talk about vernacular knowledge and I've tried to provincialize science and that can be a little bit of a controversial move. And certainly it can be taken as demeaning to the knowledge that is not scientific. And as I said, that it's easy to make the argument that it's not demeaning when the scientific knowledge is only about bird taxonomy. But scientific knowledge, it can be really applied and rich and sophisticated. So there's a tension there in saying this is vernacular knowledge and that is science and historical that I'm not using the word science for what existed in Africa. I'm using vernacular knowledge. I also use vernacular knowledge as the term for what existed all over the world, right? And science is something that develops in the 17th century. How are you guys looking at that? How are are you dealing with that in your podcast and other folks? That is an excellent question. It's one that we expect to have come up frequently. I'm imagining there's a bunch of messy answers that could at times contradict one another. But I think something about reifying capital S science as some sort of standard, that's a default starting point for a conversation. But the more that we talk and read with one another, the less interesting that default position becomes. And 
although it, it might be different in, say, a, a first-year undergraduate survey course where you kind of want to problematize that kind of thinking. As I think about later year courses and intergraduate study, it seems to me to be more interesting and more generative if we just put the capital S science to the side and not care too much. And if it is, as you're calling it, vernacular knowledges that are what people have been creating for the majority of human history, then I find that stuff just more compelling as a starting point. But yeah. I, I like how you called it science with a capital S, and that's not what we're reifying. We're reifying right. this, describing a peculiar system. And I think that's a good answer. And I think we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. Thanks. That was my that was my interjection, Jesse. If you want to go to your next question, yeah, sure. For your work, your more recent work on gray parrots, you're drawing on ethology, behavioral ecology, things like that. So, can you describe to us what these different areas of studies are, how you're pulling them together for your historical study, and some of the benefits and challenges of your approach mm-hmm. that you're taking? Mm-hmm. Ethology is really interesting to me. It's really conveyed to me the politics of being a parrot and the interspecies politics of parrots and people. The thing is, there's been almost no ethology done on African gray parrots. Fortunately, behavioral ecologists and ethologists see lots of correlation between different species of large parrots, but most of the work's been done in the Americas, Central America and South America really interesting. In order to study parrot behavior, you need a forest, but you need a forest that has good roads in it because you've got to follow these birds that fly so far. And the infrastructure of the landscape to to follow parrots around, it's more conducive in uh, Panama and, and Costa Rica. I think a lot of international, Western, European, and American ethologists have also been nervous about going to Central Africa, where the greys are, in addition to the fact that they can't really follow them as well as they can parrots of the Americas. So I'm really interested in parrot ethology, and there's been very little done on the species I want to study. So I've got to do a lot of borrowing from other species. So I just found myself calling up ethologists last year during COVID, would read ethological research, people who are working on gray parrots elsewhere, and they're all fascinated with gray parrots because no one in their field has looked much at them. And they were so supportive to me of helping me figure out the politics of being a parrot. And many of them were just really interested in expressing it that way. And I found really generous scientists who were willing to walk me through what they consider to be the evolutionary advantages of parrots being so social and vocal. So that's been really useful to me. And I've enjoyed that stuff a lot. But I've also been to the forests of Africa to look for parrots. And this is something we can talk about. I think there's a real financial and programmatic and institutional incentive for African ecologists today to work on conservation issues. I think the world expects African ecologists to be working on conservation issues as opposed to ethology. So I've connected with conservation biologists and ecologists in Africa. And in 2017, I really needed to see these parrots in the wild. 
I went to Cameroon and I went to the, the Congo Basin Institute, which is a project of UCLA in the Jaw Forest of Cameroon. They've got this wonderful system where they'll set up international researchers who want to do work in the forest, but don't necessarily have the context and the networks to do that. They connected me with an MA student in ecology who introduced us to those forests. And I'd never been to the Central African forest before. He connected us to the forests and he told us about the bird life. And we did see parrots flying way overhead. We heard them and saw them, but there was no way we could have followed them. He helped us do social science research on those parrots. His name was Romeo Kempta, and that was really useful to me. But also when I was in Cameroon, I connected with Simon Tamungan, who is a professor at the University of Bamenda, who became just such an amazing support to me. And if it weren't for Simon, I wouldn't be doing this project at all. Simon is an ecologist, and he has studied the breeding seasons of parrots, their breeding behaviors, what they eat, how they forage, how they move across the landscape. He's even studied the parasites that live on them. So Simon has really explained these ecological relationships. Simon took me in and drove me around Cameroon and introduced me to all kinds of conservationists and other biologists. That was also really essential to learn that ecological side as opposed to the ecological side. Then in 2019, I went to Ghana. In Ghana, I worked with another ecologist, Nathaniel Anurbaugh. He did this amazing research that came out in 2016. He's more of a population biologist. He was doing surveys of sites and counting parrots at roosts, etc. He published an article in 2016 that said that Ghana had lost 90 to 99% of its gray parrots since about 1970. So they were nearly extinguished from Ghana. Nat went around and did the counting and went to every site where they'd been counted in 1970 and went back and found there'd been this catastrophic decline. Now, over the years, when they disappeared, there'd been pretty vigorous pet trade, a lot of it illegal or extra legal. A lot of parrots had been taken from the forest and traded around the world. But also there'd been a lot of conversion of habitat for, to plantations. So Nat went around was able to document that the, the situation is really severe. It wasn't only because of Nat's research, but it came out at the same time the IUCUN declared gray parrots to be an endangered species. Both species of grays were declared to be endangered in 2016. Nat's research was part of that. So I've been really fortunate in connecting with Americans who study other kinds of parrots, and then in Africa studying the ecologists who've looked at how parrots live in these ecosystems. It's amazing how generous people have been to me as an historian, just turning up, trying to figure out how to tell a story about this. Yeah. And do you have plans to, or have you been doing this to try and have them give you feedback on what you've been writing and trying to incorporate sort of from there? research world? Have you engaged in that process? Well, Simon and I co-authored a blog piece on um, the cultural significance of the red tail feathers. So Simon and I have written together. We held a writing fellowship at the Rachel Carson Center for Environment and Society. So I pulled Simon a bit over to the field of environmental history. Yeah, absolutely. I check my, my findings with these experts all the time. So far, in my work, I haven't quite caught up to even the late 20th century. So when they're reading what I'm writing, they are learning a lot about what's been going on in the past. I think as I come closer to the period of their expertise, they're going to be making more interventions into what I write. But I'm trying to close that gap. So they really are the experts on the, the period I'm writing about. 
Thank you. That's great. Did you want to follow up on that, Jesse? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about the way historians of science, when you're writing, how do you think about the kinds of knowledge that people were drawing on at the time that you're studying? And then thinking about what we know now about, for example, birds that people didn't know were new in different ways. How do you kind of connect those two temporally situated understandings of these different um, scientific areas when you're writing about history? That's really hard because we don't want to project contemporary knowledge systems back in time. Kate DeLuna does that really well in her book, once again, getting back to the linguistic evidence, which I didn't have. I've just published an article that reconstructs parrot and human relationships in the pre-contact forest. I'm trying to write about before Atlantic contact when they became an object of trade. It was really hard. I had no direct evidence. What I had was Jan Vincina saying, people of the forest celebrated knowledge for knowledge's sake. And what I had was the character of parrots, that parrots will make themselves known. They're not shy. It's easy to observe them and people all over the world have done it. So I took those two points as given that people wanted to know parrots and parrots wanted to be known and thought about the ecologies and how people were supporting themselves and how parrots were supporting themselves. On that, I think I also took for granted that the red tail feathers of parrots had a deeper historical significance. I projected that back in time because it's true all over. So I'm assuming that it had a common root deeper in time. So people have an interest in tapping into the power of parrots. And with those three things, I thought about how they might have interacted. The issue was that when Europeans first arrived and started taking notes and, and, and writing down what they saw, it's really not until the 19th century that I've found any descriptions of parrots being in cages. But I believe that the people who lived in the forest knew parrots and had an interest in knowing parrots. And it's not that hard to know parrots because they're so loud and present. So I had to think about what kind of relationships they might have had if people were not caging them. What I did was speculate. I speculated on taking those circumstances for granted, what those relationships might have been and what the politics of it were. It was very reconstructive and speculative. A story has to start somewhere. Right. A story has to start with the evidence we have. Yeah, you mentioned Vancina with the deep time. I mean, he did deep time research virtually across all of Africa, but especially in that part of Central Africa. Coming to mind is, I think it's back in the 90s, but it was the JAH article that Jane Geyer did with Samuel Balinga playing off this concept of wealth and people that we find in so many African history books for good reason. But also the idea that you extended your web of people because you also wanted access to the kinds of knowledge that people could bring to bear. And to increase the size of your network was to increase the potential to have someone with expertise, whether it be ritual, practical, that sort of thing. So I'm just yeah. I'm I, and I, I drew on that in my first book because I wanted to think about why it was important for people to know birds. I don't think there was a category of specialized birders historically in Africa, but people knew birds among other things and having that knowledge could become useful socially. One of the things I did in the first book was look at the importance of hunters for their chiefs and that hunters as retainers turned into political knowledge for the chiefs. I think it was harder for me to draw that connection when it came specifically to one species. I couldn't figure out how 
gray parrots particularly turned into some sort of a form of social capital and knowing about gray parrots. But their tail feathers did have ritual value and being able to accumulate these tail feathers would have would have been powerful benefit to society. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Is it okay if I ask my next question, Jesse? Yeah, for sure. Okay, the thing I wanted to especially thank you for was sending this direct global gray parrot short document that you sent, which was just, it was great to have that little concise overview of what's going on with the grays. And I especially, I was rereading it the other day and I was just struck by the fact that you're bringing in some of this recent multi-species and human-animal relations literature. And the phrase emotional labor is one that also caught my attention. I was thinking you get into this concept of proximate conviviality to describe human-parrot relationships. As you were going through about the emotional labor that parrots or other types of non-human species might perform, I was actually struck I was sitting next to my cat and I just couldn't stop thinking about him as someone who is living in proximate conviviality with me and I with him because he has some behavioral quirks, we'll call them, in terms of his ability to go to the litter box at the right time and his very loud cat. I was just thinking about the fact that he asks of me particular types of work. He really is demanding of affection and attention, but he also seems to give both of those in equal measure. So that there was something about that that really struck a chord with me. I wondered if I could ask you to expand a bit on what it might mean for us to take seriously the emotional labor of other than human beings or forces and what that has meant. What has that meant for this project that you're doing? Well, I think my intellectual goal right now is to expand the discipline of history and to show the importance of non-humans as political actors in interaction with us. But the thing that amazes me is for so long, it was not part of history. Back in the 70s, there was this spoof article about pets as being pets as historical actors, and it was poking fun at any kind of women's history. That article was anonymously written. Whoever did it just wanted to make fun of the idea that anyone other than great white men were historical subjects. But the thing is, every time we bring it up, Everybody has stories to tell. We all relate to it. The more than human world is so present to us, but we've excluded it from our historical narratives. And I think that's really interesting. The thing I started with was the idea of companion species from Donna Haraway. When I first read the book, The Companion Species Manifesto, it just amazed me because it was a story about cross-species, multi-species love and care and alliances and work together. That just amazed me. I was really taken by it. And so I was tra- tracking down the idea of companion species, and I found that that term can become really broad and lose a lot of meaning. Sometimes it seems that any species that are interacting are called companionate. And I've seen descriptions of hunters and their prey, human hunters and their prey, having a companionate relationship. And I thought if that same term applies to someone killing a deer and someone cleaning up a cat's litter, that's a really broad term. There are really different things going on here. The thing about Africa before contact is, unlike in Europe and unlike in 
pre-Columbian America, where Marcy Norton has done amazing work showing people habituated animals, very often parrots, and tamed them very commonly and brought them into their households as familiars. And Europe had no parrots. Europe is the continent without parrots. That's what differentiates it from the rest of the world, in my view. But Europeans were getting parrots from South Asia since the, the time of Alexander the Great, really, and keeping them in cages. But the thing is, when I looked all of my evidence for historic Africa, deeply historic Africa, is that they weren't keeping parrots in cages. So that's where I came up with this idea of proximate conviviality. Conviviality I get from the archaeologist Michael Given. It has a longer genealogy than that, but really Michael Given is how I found the word. Conviviality is about the ecological and physical relationships between different actors in an assemblage that together throb with life and seed life, he says, and act together through this distributed agency where what results is much more than the vision of any particular actor. It's a way to uh, break down the idea of liberal actors and, and individual achievement. It's a way to bring in ecology, and it's a way to account for the material forces in the world. And I'm really taken with this idea of conviviality because it shows that it's an ecological relationship, but there's also perhaps more room for politics in it. To say that an assemblage is convivial doesn't mean that it's harmonious, but it means that life is created through the interactions. And this, this is what all of our more than human environmental humanities theory is telling us. So when I was thinking about pre-colonial Africa, I was using this idea of conviviality. What I found about people and parrots is they're in the same ecosystem. They're in the same forest. Sometimes they eat the same fruit, but no parrot has ever imitated a human in the wild. Parrots have this great ability to mimic, and we've never known them to mimic us in the wild. So they're aware of us, and, and, they, and parrots will squawk when people are hunting to warn other species, but they won't actually imitate us. And people were not caging parrots. So I didn't think the term companion species applied at all. I thought that they were connected in this, in this assemblage, in a convivial assemblage, and they were proximate, but they weren't actually companions. They had separate communities. But then the thing comes that after the penetration of the Atlantic world and with the trade of enslaved people primarily, but also natural products, including some animals from Africa, parrots made their way to, to Europe where they were put in cages. African greys had a very different relationships with humans once they were kept in cages in the new world. And they became something closer to the companion species like your cat, Connor. And the thing about your cat and my dog is they are, they're domesticated animals and we have bred them and chosen them for certain characteristics and maybe not cats, but my dog at least does submit to my discipline. I can demand things of my dog. The dog gives me loyalty, but I can also demand the loyalty. It's forthcoming. So domesticated animals perform emotional labor for us, and we demand it of them and they give it to us. I guess our thinking about emotional labor now in human terms is it's care work, very often by, by people who are perhaps in vulnerable situations, in structurally insecure situations, that they're doing care work. Sometimes it's coerced of them. Sometimes they don't have many other choices and they're underpaid, but it's still care work. And, and we know they're investing in it, sometimes under situations where they're not entirely free. And I think that's true for domesticated animals as well. I think that's really useful. The thing about parrots is, though, that we have never bred them. Parrots have been bred for color. So there are budgies that are all different colors. 
but we have never selected parrots for any characterological traits. They are the wild birds. And it's really only in the past 25 years that they've been produced on any large scale. Until about 25 years ago, all of the parrots, and this isn't just African greys, but any large parrots that we had in cages had been born in the wild and taken from the wild. And the thing about parrots is, well, it's ironic that they are a capitalist resource because parrots are essentially non-capitalist creatures. <laughs> parrots are very generous. They share their knowledge. They share their food with no expectation of reward. That's been proven in laboratory experiments. And parrots do not submit to discipline. So parrots come to us, and we have this expectation that animals will provide emotional labor. And maybe what the parrots are doing is not quite labor, but it's an emotional service. Because this is what happens when they come to us, they're wild animals. And what they're looking for are flockmates. The ethologists and Conrad Lorenz, they both worked with birds. And interesting, they focused in on this word companion, as far as companion species went. And they said, if people want companions Birds want something very different. And they're both German speakers. And they said, actually, the better word for what birds want from us, it's a cognate to the English word companion, but it's the German word kumpan, and it means buddy. So it's really interesting to think of these two words that people are looking for emotional, effective companions to whom they are loyal, with whom they have this deep bond. And birds are looking for buddies to do things with. And what they want to do is forage for food and make babies. So these parrots come to us, and because they want to make babies, they're looking to court and woo people in the households. So they come to us affectionately, trying to fulfill their own needs. And we read that as, as the emotional service that our cats and dogs provide to us. But our cats and dogs, dogs are flock animals, and they don't expect they're going to mate with you, and they don't expect they're going to displace your spouse, but birds expect to do that and they make these demands. So while they're courting and wooing and while you're experiencing touch with them and while they're talking to you and imitating you because that's their way of finding a mate, what they're really seeking is someone to become their flock mate. People who, sometimes, who don't understand that, who don't realize that the bird is not actually a subject to their discipline, it leads to tremendous misunderstandings. Because trying to discipline a bird is just impossible, and it can become really tragic. Birds will be isolated because they can't be disciplined. They'll pluck themselves. They'll scream. They can die. They can be isolated. There are sanctuaries all over the world where people give up the parrots they can't keep anymore because they're not domesticated animals. And because they have no idea of actually providing emotional labor to us, what they want is their own emotional needs to be fulfilled by their relations with us. And they have very different emotional needs than we do. So this model from the forest, approximate conviviality, I think sometimes parrots were taken and, and feathers were plucked and, and they might've been tamed. But in the forests of Africa, I think there was a much looser connection that actually was much healthier for the parrots. The issue is now they're endangered. And if they're going to survive in these transformed forests, these blasted landscapes, as Anna Singh would call them, they've got to survive in our homes if the species is going to survive. And what that's going to take is humans coming around and figuring out that they are not going to be the companions of domesticated animals. And if they're going to live with us, we have to recognize what their expectations are 
and what kind of worlds they're trying to make as they interact with us. It's a hard thing and, and the outcome's very often tragic. My hope is that in narrating this history of how parrots and people come together and the politics between them and showing them to be historical actors, perhaps that will reveal their world-making and their, their capacity over centuries. And perhaps in some ways that can contribute to a mutual culture of care. That's my ethical hope for the sake of the birds when it comes to this book. Could I ask what you hope your upcoming couple of years looks like in terms of the research process for this? I've got a sabbatical next year. I've seen these birds flying overhead and I've never gotten close to them when they're landed. I've read all of this ethology and I want to think about intra-parrot politics to see what they're bringing to their relations with people. So I want to find them where I can actually watch them. And I've heard that in Kibali National Park in Uganda, you can actually get close to the parrots and sit under the trees and watch them. So that's my first goal. I want to do that. I also want to go back to Ghana and I'm hoping I can travel with Nathaniel Honor again. Talk to trappers and traders. There's very little trade coming from Ghana now, but I've talked to trappers and traders. And I want to talk to them again. What I found is great affection for the birds and a real understanding of how to live with the birds and, and tremendous knowledge about the birds. But the story we well know from African history is that the, the dependence on external trade for lack of other opportunities and the value of natural resources, the birds were traded unsustainably and often illegally. And Nat has talked to people living in the forest about what happened to the birds. What they've always said to him is, oh, they've just moved. They've just gone to a different part of the forest. They're still here. They're just not, not here at this moment. And Nat did the research all around Ghana to find that the populations had plummeted. And he and I would like to go back and talk to Ghanaians, including the people who had been trapping them, about what's turned out and what's happened that these birds really are gone and talk to them about their own memories of the birds and what it meant to them to be in these multi-species relationships with the birds. I would like to try to have that conversation. I also want to go back to South Africa. I've been to South Africa once and I've spoken to owners of breeding aviaries. I've never come to this project as an animal rights activist. And there are real tensions between the people who are involved in commercial production and animal rights activists. When I went there in 2017, I was able to talk to aviary owners and employees, and I was able to see these breeding aviaries. I think ultimately my work is going to raise reservations about that commercial production. And it's not what I meant to do. I didn't get into this to condemn anyone for their relations with birds. I think we are all completely entangled in capital relationships and exploitation of the natural world, including animals. I don't think there's an innocent space for any of us. And I didn't get into this to prosecute either the traders or the aviary owners, but I think this book is going to cause people to reflect with some hesitation about commercial production of these highly intelligent commercial species. I want to go back and try to talk to the, the aviary owners again, but I know that's going to be hard. I know they're going to sense what, where my work is leading, even though I haven't set it up and to criticize their industry. What I also want to do is, is just have some time to think and write, but three trips to Africa would be ideal for me now. One to the forest where the birds still are, one to the forest they've disappeared from, and one to South Africa where they're being bred.
It's funny to me listening to you talk about what's coming up for you, because at the beginning of our talk, you were saying you were moving away from Marxist modes of production, economic analysis. Your work now is bringing you a bit back towards that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. This is very much a, a history of these birds becoming capitalist resources. And it's a history of Africa being open to exploitation, African resources being open to exploitation. I see that very much. The fact that they're being raised in South Africa, which is nowhere near their native range, it has to do with the fact that agricultural labor is really underpaid and not very expensive in South Africa. These are hand-fed birds. So you need a country like South Africa where workers can be hired to feed the birds without great labor costs. Unfortunately, that's the legacy of capitalist agriculture under apartheid South Africa. Farm labor is still really poorly paid, so that's underwriting the production of these birds. I think that in South Africa, animal production is less regulated, certainly than less than in the UN or the US. So South Africans are now exporting all around the world except the US and the EU. The EU doesn't allow birds, particularly having to do with diseases such as bird flu. That's originally why they stopped bird imports. The U.S. originally stopped bird imports about 30 years ago because of conservation. But South Africans are raising all sorts of wildlife, reptiles and birds and fish that go all over Asia, Western Asia, Central Asia, Eastern Asia. That trade just exploded after 1994 when South Africa was able to enter into commercial relationships with all sorts of countries again. So it's very much the history of, of Africa and the history, Africa as a resource exporter, and the history of South Africa as a place with cheap labor, sad to say, that fits into this history of parrots becoming capitalist resources. So absolutely, you're right. Great. Well, it's three o'clock now, so... I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Connor, do you have anything else? I don't have anything specific. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, guys. I enjoyed it too. I have to thank you for your really good questions. And thank you for what you're doing with the podcast. I really enjoyed listening to Julie, and I'm looking forward to hearing the rest. Thank okay, you. Thanks so much. All right. Enjoy the weekend. Yep, you too. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.